0: Hello and welcome to CitiesABC.com series of interviews and profiles with global top thought leaders, experts and people shaping and creating new narratives for our world, society and business industry. My name is is Dinis Guarda and I'm an author and researcher and a serial entrepreneur. And I've been here and uh, doing this for a long time and talking with some of the people facing and trying to solve some of the biggest problems humanity is facing questions and as well looking at how to challenge how we think and how can we think bigger more sustainable and out of the box citiesabc.com and the platform that i founded is a new wiki for ar intelligent, smart cities tech digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities universities and all of us citizens today we have with us dr william hu that is an innovative thinker and technology evangelist with over 10 years' experience in leading and executing innovation projects around the world, and as well working between public, private, and academic stakeholders. And this is as well the founder of a project that I'm very excited to talk about today, that is One for City project. Uh, welcome to our series of interviews, William. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Very nice to meet you
1: and speaking to you personally. Thank you.
0: So, uh, William, I want to start with the the basis and as well with your background. You have a fantastic academic background, but as well coming from China and being based in the UK, there's a lot of uh, geopolitics and as well a lot of learning between different cultures, different ways of looking at process, looking at work, looking at methodologies. So I'd like to give us a bit of your background in terms of education as well, and uh, from China to the UK and as well the different things you've been doing around the world.
1: Thank you, Dennis. So um, my name is William. Hi. Um, So um, I've been actually studying and living and working in the UK for the past 15 years. And before that, um, I was actually a Shanghainese. I lived in Shanghai for about 20 years. I finished my first degree in Shanghai, which is Tongji University. And Tongji University is one of the leading uh, engineering universities in China and it was particularly well-known for civil engineering, and that's my major when I did my Tongji degree, uh, bachelor degree over there. After the graduation from Tongji University, I came over to the UK and to further my study at Imperial College. So that was about 15 years ago, time flies. I also did my master's degree in civil and structural engineering, you know, uh, in a well-famous Skempton building. I learned a lot over there. I finished my master's degree, and I, I think I won an award as well at, for my master's thesis. And I went on to uh, start my career uh, in Atkins Global. Atkins is probably the largest engineering consultancy uh, in, in the UK at, at the time. And I was focusing on two major projects. Uh, one is the Crossrail project, which hopefully, our Londoners will be able to take on the crossroad uh, very soon in the a, in a, in a coming week, uh, years. The other is the London Olympics, uh, which actually happened uh, in 2012. So finishing my uh, Atkins life, about three and a half years time, I decided to go back to academic again. It was largely to do with a, you know, a, I cannot reject opportunity from studying at the Imperial, but in another department. And this time I went to innovation and entrepreneurship group in Imperial College's business school. I, I researched um, eco-cities as a topic, but particularly focused on the uh, innovation management side of the eco-cities. So that means I look into how eco-cities got incentivized, how, how organizations deliver the eco-cities and how does that differ from the traditional master planning of the equals of the of the traditional urbanized cities and i also look into the organizational approaches you know looking at how they manage their innovation activities their business models around this incoming new market eco-city market yeah, sustainable development market so um spending that kind of time at imperial um really really um a wonderful experience because Um, I got a chance to really, you know, go to more than 10 countries to to present my my papers, uh, my research papers around uh, my findings uh, for my PhD. I went on to become a postdoc as well as working for Cisco at the time. So I was selected uh, from my innovation entrepreneurship group to work for Cisco uh, Strategic Innovation Group and um, it was dated back to 2013. And now it's been seven years since I've been, you know, started uh, at Cisco. And um, now I am a a Head of Innovation Insight uh, at Cisco's Strategic Innovation Group Um, and as part of the emerging technologies and incubation sector uh, within Cisco. So that's me, that's about me, time really flies by. And I'm 37 years old, uh, 22 years in Shanghai and 15 years in UK, so almost half
0: that's quite impressive and as well as interesting we've spent probably a huge part of your life already in the uk so you are already between two countries uh so i want to touch the your background and education and your phd because i think it's a particularly interesting especially the area of innovation and the idea of um, uh, green cities or eco cities because it's becoming really big on that area and as well um the concept of innovation related with that um so uh I think, Ken, the last part. Uh, so we will talk as well about a bit uh, the different things. So just a bit this part of the, the, the PhD and the purpose of your PhD and the research that you've been doing with the Imperial College, because I think it's a very important thing. on That. Yeah.
1: So um, actually, I, it was quite interesting for you, Dennis, to mention that about you know it, at that time it's about green cities, it was about eco cities, and for for the time period between 2005 and maybe roughly around until 2013 or 12, um, the whole world really shifted their focus about urbanization. You know, people have started to realize that more than half of the populations in the world uh, become urbanized and uh, that actually is quite a bit of a milestone, especially for a lot of the new countries, for the emerging countries. and. Uh, and then following that, the, the emerging challenges uh, really come, come on, on top of the, you know, the agenda. So it's not just about urbanization. It is about the challenges associated with the urbanization. You know, about solution, pollutions, about you know, increasing populations. Um, and So very limited resources, but also increasingly elderly people, you know, aging, aging um, generations and um, countries are trying to deal with a new uh, way of coping with the rapid urbanization, but also um, trying to still keep the quality of the lives in urbanized world. So ecological cities was a new concept raised at a period of time, really the first time to putting the sustainability at the central heart of master planning. So if you are familiar with master planning, You probably know that the traditional way of doing master planning is to follow the rules. So for example, if you if you can get a land, you will be instructed to know that how much percentage of the land will be developed for residential areas, for example. How much percentage of land will be used for industrial or commercial purposes. There will be some instructions starting from the beginning. And with that kind of the constraints, you are looking to what sort of functions you are putting into the land as a master planner. You could look look into the bridges, rivers, buildings, um, streets, and bus stops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, looking at how would you be able to ensure the development of the buildings, the development of the streets, the development of the transport in your local areas to ensure central central sustainability to be to be to be in in the central heart of that, and that actually bring in different perspectives into unprecedented master planning approach for example people have never thought about um, incorporating economists into master plan into master plans people have never thought about how they would be able to incorporate sustainable index into the master plans and that's the first time when people start to look at maybe we should really reorganize our resources around this central point sustainability and to measure the impact of every single of our, our activities uh, for building, building our future cities, for building our urbanization uh, uh, challenges. So um, so that's 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 where we started. And then the whole world started to populate lots of green cities. It's not just about China, it's also about Middle East. If you have heard of Mazda, Mazda Master, Master City at the time was one of the most ambitious uh, eco-cities eco- in the world. We've also heard about a a, a number of the green cities from the United States, um, whereas they also have got the huge ambitious plan for building that kind of eco cities. So my PhD research was really to focus on those innovations from those eco cities, but also the management practices, how organizations really to, um, to facilitate the innovations to happen around those innovations, and meanwhile to achieve their own organizational goals as well. So um, that's what really my PhD was about. Uh, and I spent um, a number of years at Imperial and because of the, the, uh, the prevalence of the topic at the time, uh, I was quite lucky to get invited to more than 10 conferences uh, to, to talk about uh, our findings of, from the research, from our papers. And um, there was a huge uh, in- amount of interest around that. But interestingly, the family, you know, the ecosystems, the academic ecosystems around that particular topic is, is quite small. You always find the similar people, similar faces when you go with those conferences.
0: The, the concept of green cities or eco cities is definitely becoming one of the major concepts in the research um, field, but it's still not touched in the cities. Very few cities are really taking this very serious. So from your research and from um, the way you look at innovation, can you tell us some of the findings that your research um, uh, that you got from the research and as well that you find are really important to, to talk to our audience of people around the world? Sure. So, so firstly is um, because
1: the central concept is put sustainability um, in, in the central, so that all the multidisciplinary uh, teams need to work around uh, for that new central point which is sustainability. And and then the next question would be, how would you be able to measure whether you have achieved that sustainable goal, no matter which discipline you come from? So that actually leads to the next question, which which is do you have got a framework to measure the performances of every single corner of your cities, no matter whether it's going to be a sustainable building, or or whether it's going to be a, a proper transport planning within your within your smart urbanized area um, and and kpis coming out to become a more predominant um, you know uh, approach as a result of the, this new approach so people start to realize that you know how would you be able to define the kpis for different parts of the urban urbanized world you need to look at how much sol- pollution you can allow to g- generate uh, in your local area or how, when would you be able to achieve the carbon zero um, in, in your in your urbanized area? You also need to look at new approaches to collect rubbishes. You need to look at the new approaches to uh, to clean the water in in your local area, and 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 what sort of economic value that that, that is implicated in that way. So these are the, uh, the, the basically they are the process innovation instead of the just the product innovation. And that's one of the key findings we have found, is um, people's literally trying to achieve that ending goal, which is the KPIs, the performance indicators. But the process of achieving that goal um, uh, really uh, you know, impacts is a lot of the uh, procedures within the organizations. And that created huge turbulences within the organizations who are actually doing that. So for example, one of the key uh, focused um, case case study organizations we had was a one, one of the major engineering consultancies uh, in the world. They have never got this disciplinary uh, approach in the past, so they have been reorganized uh, to cope with the central sustainability sustainability elements uh, to to coordinate differently to to finish the master plan for the future eco cities. And that actually created a lot of confusion at the time. Um, people don't know what to do next because people are waiting for the responses, waiting for the other answers from the other disciplines because every single discipline are interdependent with each other. No longer is, 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 is the linear approach. That's a master plan, you know, come up with a, a physical plan. Where do you put the buildings? Where do you put the bridges? Where do you put the rivers? It's the other way around. Is what are the our, final indicators, how do they look like? And then we rearrange uh, to to cope with that, to, to deal with that kind of demand. And then that starts to iterate and rotate in between multidisciplinaries uh, in the in the organization. So for us, this kind of the process innovation was kind of the uh, new findings uh, from, from that research.
0: So this, this is one of the cutting edge areas that we are facing finding right now in the areas of city research and all the areas. I want to touch a bit more, so um, from your experience as well, working with the Imperial College, which has a huge focus, actually interviewed the Dean of the Imperial College recently. So one of the things, how do you see, um, and before we go into your achievements and as well, so keeping a bit on this research, how do you see from this experience as well, the case studies that I'm sure that you went through, do you see like case studies that cities can use or you see that we are very far away from this because that's one of the things i have always like to look at the theory of the practice And i know that uh, there's a lot of um, tentatives and we're working with a couple of uh, cities and i'm discussing this but uh, i would like to understand if we see that uh, there's already some international frames some international context on this area that you feel that we are in the right direction or we are still far ahead from all of this yeah so
1: I, I have to say, if you look at the, this have to be looked looked at through the history of the development of the cities. In the uh, two two decades ago, so about fifteen years ago, between two thousand five to two thousand twelve, the the whole world is predominantly by the discourse of eco cities, and after two thousand twelve until now, we are more or less into the area of smart cities. There is a reason why. Behind that, um, to some extent, eco cities were not su- hugely successful. From my perspective, it was largely to do with the incentives behind the creation of those cities. So um, again, it could to do with different countries' uh, incentives as well. So if you go with the Far East, China, the incentives could come from the from the above, from the government. They want to do it. Um, yes, and. The Government wants to do it you know, based on a lot of the evidences that you know this could enhance could this could improve people's lives, uh, people's life li- uh, living qualities. Uh, but on the other hand, um, the, that, that the way how they organize themselves together is to find a top-down approach, a hi- hierarchical top-down approach to enforce the uh, sustainability incorporated into into the master planning practices is the way how they see it. However, to some extent, that could not be hugely, uh, completely aligned with the economic incentives. You know, because people are trying to keep keep up with the KPI requirements, but not necessarily there is a deep thinking behind the business model for them. If people cannot see that as a sustainable business model, no matter how you can take up the first phase, you would not be able to sustain at the later phases. We all know that urbanization wouldn't happen within one year or two. It's an ongoing process. It could be lasting for decades. So from my perspective, um, that's one of the weak points for uh, sustainable cities, for eco-cities as a concept, if you're using sustainability as the single parameter, as as, as the focal point. Similarly, in master city, if you look at the case study of master city, they were not hugely successful as well they were the most ambitious city project at the time and uh, middle east government has claimed that they will invest into billions in uh, into into the project they were they were this whole city will be equipped with lots of the fancy and emerging technologies however not all of these technologies have been considered very thoroughly they were not grounded they haven't really got the human-centered approach. So uh, it's more or less a sudden, a, a, a technology pace, uh, you know, um, overarching everything and to, to achieve a blueprint for the city. So they are not grounded enough. Once again, the incentives for the local residents, for the citizens to get involved into building their own future uh, has not really been realized in, in, that, in that part of the world. So that's why Sustainable cities, eco-cities are still a part of our life at the moment, but they are not the only mainstream. Currently, when we talk about smart cities, when we talk about future cities in the world, we are talking about incorporating future technologies with a lot of the objectives. Sustainability, sustainability is one of them. I'm talking about especially about environmental friendly as one of them. You would also need to look at the other aspects. About social impacts, about economic impacts, about political impacts, these are the uh, necessary elements which have to be incorporated into the whole master plan of the urbanized area. So sustainability, will we one of them, not all of them.
0: Now and this is a very very important part, and I think like you said there's a huge right now First of all, there's a huge confusion still because even smart cities we still don't have like any benchmark international. So from a researcher perspective, just to wrap up this phase and then I want to go to the your projects. Um, from a researcher perspective as well, from your experience both in the Imperial uh, research and as well in, in the other industry areas that you've been doing, how far are we to build like an international benchmark that can actually start impl- in? Integrating some of these features of smart cities and uh, and eco cities even more difficult, like you mentioned. But just try to at least get some international standards for this, because I think the problem right now is that we have fantastic research from universities like the ones you've been working. We have fantastic, even international, from United Nations and from even the Chinese government and as well other governments in Europe, in particular, a lot of frames or at least a lot of ideas. But then most of the cities are struggling to just get the basic stuff and of course COVID-19 is coming in the middle right now and creating another lot of other challenges so what's your views on this and what's more or less your opinion on these areas
1: yeah sure so um, firstly um, what we are aware of is there is a in incoming or there is already a ISO standard uh, for smart cities for example I think it's ISO 37120 and apparently, there are different sub-branches um, for the uh, for that standard, which basically list out list out the KPI framework for measuring, you know, the performances of a smartness uh, of of a, of a city. Um, but having said that, um, that standard is relatively new, and it's also currently in development as well. You know, uh, with the joint forces from multiple uh, parties and I understand uh, France and China, are one of them predominantly, uh, and I think pioneered by Canada, uh, as far as I understand, uh, who, are, who are involved. But also the UK government BSI, they are also involved in developing that ISO 37120. There are also sub branches of that ISO standard, which I don't need to touch upon, but they are similar numbers, 37122, stuff like that. But, um, no matter how these standards are developed at this stage, what's happening in reality is uh, there isn't a clear convincing index uh, for measuring the city performances uh, in the world or across the world. Um, that's to, to some extent is, is actually implicating how, com- how complex um, the, the city performances are and, and also how difficult could you actually extract the data from measuring those performances, and we have seen some of the initial work, like Cities ABC, um, and also um, some of the other uh, parallel works, trying to rank rank different cities in a way that you know to look at their different perspectives, and I think that's a very brave and also a very um, important start to start looking at how we can actually you know give a bit of definitions about smarts about smart cities what do you mean by smart cities what do you mean by ecological cities and um and to give some benchmark in between cities um just like what we have already done with buildings you know we the global standards for the buildings are green and leads as a predominant you know uh, global standards to measure the sustainability of buildings so it would be very helpful to get a bit of the common area that all different cities they can look at as the benchmark. Um, On the practical side, on the practical side, I've been personally working on smart city projects in the world, uh, in in the UK, and also across the UK, uh, overseas as well. I've asked them, have you ever used ISO 37120 to to be adopted as as a governing principle for you to design and plan your cities? The answer is not yet. I think to some extent um, they have expressed that, you know, um, every single city is different. So you wouldn't be able to use a single framework to really overlay everything that they are doing because they know what they want to do because they they know local challenges. They want to leverage technologies, leverage different design principles to achieve what they want to achieve. On the the other side is, this market is still relatively new. So um, they haven't, re- uh, most the cities, especially in the UK, they haven't really achieved to the performance uh, index that, that the ISO has classified. They are more or less at the trial and early stage of the demonstrations. And, and then uh, the next step is really to, you know, expand that across a more wider audiences, a more wider end users base so that actually gives a bit of indications about how big gap this could be and and how much work, more work that can be done in this particular area
0: yeah this is a very big thing and i think going forward this is going to be one of the biggest uh, actually requirements for the humanity because if you get this right you can actually improve a lot of standards and a lot of different things so this brings us to the project one for City, which is a fantastic project uh, for all from all means. Um, so, can you tell us what is the One for City for someone that never heard about it, and your vision because it's partly to build that vision? Yeah, One for City uh, really comes out of
1: a a portfolio of the smart city projects I've been working on across the UK and also uh, many in China. So, um, I do notice the differences in terms of the approaches to design and build the smart city initiatives in these two major countries in the world. What I found is that um, there are still gaps in terms of what we can do about, you know, facilitating the actual deployment of the smart solutions in the city context. For example, the Chinese government and the Chinese local private sectors, they want to build the future generations of smart cities, as well as smart towns. They've got huge ambition. They just want to achieve a lot of things in a very limited time frame. What they have got is they know the existing business model that can work. So for example, a local developer, they know that they can sell residential pieces, but they are not satisfied that uh, enough with that. They want to achieve more they want to build future towns, build future smart towns. So that would include not only residential buildings, but also hospitals, schools, um, town centers, and transport systems in that as well. They understand that the future is about you know, putting these different elements together, creating a, a, a good quality of living standard for their local citizens, but also trying to leverage the emerging technologies to create unique experiences for those residents and that would help them to position themselves more competitive in front of the other similar developers for example so lots of the smart technologies that have been widely used in the current chinese market are the automated automated detection of the of the car panels, you know, it can recognize what is your vehicle number. And once you got recognized, you can be automatically allowed into the car park. There are also car parking, smart parking, uh, you know, applications as well. So these have been implemented on the ground. What they have not got is a holistic um, smart solutions as a system to underpin different value streams happening within their towns, within their smart towns. Within that, um, what they have got is predominantly the APP application based uh, smart uh, deployment rather than those, uh, you know, uh, the IoT driven, the data driven smart solutions in their towns. So they want to learn from the, the, the West. They want to understand what's happening from the West, but they struggle with that. So that's the challenge number one. Challenge number two is uh, UK cities. They also started to deploy some of the small and interesting innovative solutions on their ground. But they struggle to understand whether their new solutions will be able to be deployed and also be scaled. They don't know how they can closely work with them, what's the business model behind it. And that actually puts the challenges onto those SMAs who actually provide those solutions to the UK local authorities. Because Um, the scalability is not very obvious. If there is no population base, if there is no scalability, they wouldn't be able to sell their solutions um, in in big pieces. They wouldn't be able to sustain. So uh, they are eyeing on the overseas market as well. So One4City is trying to bridge that gap in terms of giving the access for the, for example, the Chinese uh, interest parties, to understand the availability of the smart technology solutions happening in the UK and elsewhere in the world. We structurally mapped those vertical uh, markets um, into into a database. So what we have got in One4City is we looked into all the smart solutions in any particular vertical in the UK market. Some of them are quite, more developed, some of them are less developed. We look into different indexes of these smart solutions and we put them into the database, but we show them into a very simple and straightforward way on the website to tell the, to tell the overseas developers, to tell the overseas clients that these are the available smart technology solutions which can bring X, Y, Z benefits to your smart tongue development. They have been deployed, they have been been evidenced in the UK market in such ways. And this is their go-to market um, approaches. Uh, This is how they get sold, this is how they get serviced. We hope that we could bring a structured way for the overseas market to understand how the UK technology solutions work. And that actually bridges the knowledge gap, but also potentially, hopefully, that would bring more interest from the overseas market. To invest in the UK technology solutions market underneath the smart city framework. So that's where really is where these initiatives come from for One for City. And you can tell from our website is we've got we've collected uh, lots of the uh, information and categorized them into different solution verticals. And we hope that this could be a one-stop solution shop. For smart city solutions um, in, in the world, and people don't need to look elsewhere. They just need to look, looking to the website, looking to our database, saying, "Hey, I want to look for a, um, a, a a remote monitoring solution for my for my parents who are 65 years old, staying at home. Which other solutions can I look at, and how can I be deployed in my neighborhood?" If I've got that question, they can just tap into One for City project and easily find that solution. And we will find the actual tangible solutions for them. And they will be structured, and recorded in our database. So that's One for City as a simple com- concept.
0: So, so that's very ambitious, and I think it's really necessary. So, from your experience working between um, China and Europe, and as well the rest of the world, I think China at the moment is definitely leading innovation, especially when it comes to cities, uh, probably a bit with the US and Europe, Um, but China definitely is going a bit further. Now there's the CNB um, initiative from the Chinese government. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of things happening on that area. So what would be things that you think that China is doing right now that the rest of the world should copy and how can we look at these different things in a kind of a holistic Way, because that's a very important thing and I'm sure that's part of what you try to do one for city
1: yeah so uh, one of the key elements for fostering these or sustaining these innovations is business model once again it's a business model business incentive um, but that has to be related to the how the market is structured from my perspective the fragmentation of the market really provides a really uh, become a huge uh, impact factor to uh, to to enable the speedy adoptions of the new technologies and new new innovations. So for example, the, again, the model is quite different in, in China is um, the government is quite responsible in China, quite responsible for investing in in mega infrastructure in China. And that's quite helpful because if you once you've got that digital infrastructure as a foundation on in place, your applications rely on these digital foundations, such as connectivities, cyber securities, interoperabilities, data centers, data exchange, that sort of stuff, could be, you know, you could easily to build on top of those foundations and start to really look at the applications layer, directly engaging with to be or to see end users. And your business model around applications could be um, could be um, designed and also played using the market mechanism, and because of this kind of foundation uh, have already started to exist or have already started to be invested by Chinese governments and all the local authorities, the, uh, the 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 speed of the development in the China in the China Chinese market uh, is is much quicker compared to the Westernized world. If you look at the uh, the Westernized market. I have to say that sometimes um, the public sector and private sectors have been working closely with each other. But on the other hand, it has also indicated the fragmentation of how the market looks like, because um, you know, um, lots of the uh, infrastructure are owned by private sectors. So for them to move one step forward, they need to have a convincing business case. So. Just giving a 5G example. To invest in 5G technologies in the UK, normally they're responsible. They, 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 are, they, are, they are driven by the MNOs in, in this country, in the UK. Because MNOs, they, they can f- find a feasible business model in the urbanized area, you know, directly targeting consumers, you know, uh, more, uh, higher high bandwidth, low latency, that can facilitate, you surf the internet fairly quickly, and also you can uh, add on a lot of applications. However, what about the other part of the uh, 5G te- technology deployment? A- especially in the rural area, whereas you have no population base over there. What is the investment case for that? And would you be able to start looking at the industrial 4.0 in the rural area, agriculture, transport, tourism, energy, um, so these are the areas that the government has realized that we need more investment because um, the the market mechanism in this country is very different. It's quite privately incentivized. You need those MNOs to invest in the rural area. that's not possible. There's no population base over there. You have to look at how you would be able to aggregate these different vertical use cases into an investment case so as to present in front of those investors to say, hey, this is the potential return from your infrastructure investment. And this is the payback period for your infrastructure investment. But within that, even within that, you still need to expect a lot of challenges and risks in terms of consolidate these different use cases from different verticals. And I think that's the key difference is um, the uh the the fragmentation really slows things down and and people realize the importance of aggregation but it's not easy to aggregate everything together so um i think it will be uh it will be uh, a in between private and public sector uh but particularly we need to get some leadership uh to do that uh to 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 pioneer that um and and so as to compete uh with the other parts of the world whereas you know uh, the fragmentation is slightly less um, but the foundation has been layered uh, from the beginning to foster innovation and technology adoption
0: so you touch uh, of course 5g which is one of the main trends for sex cities and for cities in general and for technology and of course all the challenges between putting it in practice which is very complex so 5G implies as well a better capacity then to look at AI and big data and analytics, which is critical to make better cities and smart cities. So from your research and from actually your work with smart cities and as well on the research, but as well on the practice and as well being in one of the biggest players in telecoms and and technology that is Cisco, how do you see the the main trends for cities and society in general, and especially areas of AI, big data, IoT, these kind of areas that we are right now on this
1: yeah so i think all you have just mentioned are the important technology trends uh, which will impact uh, and will happen to our our lives uh, in the near future Um, i have to say that uh, ai will be the major force to you know to make lots of changes uh, to different areas of different uh, vertical markets Uh, but on the other hand AI is also a a tool. It it is a a approach to simplify, but also to automate uh, processes and operations. Once we talk about operations and processes, we need to start to talk about people. People who are actually sitting in their positions doing the day job, doing the manual job, doing their day, um, day operations. To be able to facilitate that kind of change that AI can bring in, not only the change, but also the benefits that AI and those trendy technologies can can bring, we need to demonstrate benefits very clearly. And once again, that's down to the KPIs. So the KPIs, which can measure the benefits, to realize the benefits, to measure the performance of the benefits, uh, is absolutely key. Because once you can demonstrate that benefits, not only the end users benefits but also the process benefits that would potentially convert the changes happen in in the sector Um, but still it's quite a complex issue because um, ai is one of the elements normally one of the elements along the value chain and um, to facilitate to 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 really revolutionize those value chains into a better shape you have, to, you have to do a lot of work. So uh, what I want to emphasize right here is, um, yes, AI uh, is one of the uh, trendy technologies. It will make major changes. Uh, it will be the uh, catalyst for making major changes, but uh, we need to adopt a more system thinking uh, to, to look at how it can evolve, how it can transform our city lives in the future.
0: So one of the things that is uh, one of your areas of concern is the relationship between the footfall of analytics and automated surveillance. And this is going to be critical as smart city technology becomes mainstream and uh, as we get all these rankings that we're talking about. So how do you see this uh, in terms of uh, looking at solutions to make this not a dystopian uh, scenario, but as well something that can actually uh, work in our side for improving integrated health and social care, but as well to get digital collaboration.
1: Mm. So, um, footfall analytics. Um, so, um, there are also different ways of uh, doing the footfall analytics. You know, you could potentially equip the cameras with intelligence, with edge computing capabilities, to be able to count the number of the people, but also to look at the the dwell time to look at how, how they get flowed uh, in the particular area. So for example, if you are looking at a shopping center, the footfall analytics will be able to a- enable you to understand how many people get into the entrance, how many get people go outside of the entrance or go outside of the exit. And you potentially can you can identify and analyze the flows within your shopping center. You could also use that uh, to measure the impact on the retail retailers within your shopping center. So you know the heat map indicating the dwell time, indicating uh, the the number of the visits, and and also indicating the profiles of the those visits. Well, you know whether they are elderly people, they are young people, uh, they are male or female. That kind of the indicators. So that's very helpful once we understand the the uh, the patterns of the footfall uh, in in the cities. Um, in terms of surveillance. Um, that's also equally uh, one of the key, um, again, technology uh, tools uh, happening in, in the cities. Um, it, it could also applicable for different areas as well. So in the major cities, it could happen in our transport. So I've come across, you know, again, using some sensors, being able to detect uh, the, the vandalism uh, noises happening in buses or in trains. We could also look at um, the surveillances around farmland. You know, people lose sheep in that farmland. How would you be able to automate the process of keeping uh, your sheep safe away from from thieves? How would you be able to prevent people uh, stealing your your sheep? So these are these are the uh, surveillance uh, technologies that can help. Once again, you can use cameras. Or you can attach tags or IoT sensors uh, to your ships to identify the locations or to understand the presence of, of, your, of your assets uh, in those, um, in those critical, critical areas to keep the surveillance up. So um, what I've observed is, um, yes, uh, cities have started to deploy the footfall analytics and also the surveillances in their cities for different purposes. And um, once again, looking to the business case for them is whether they can generate the returns once you deploy these technologies. Would you be able to save more operational cost if you can deploy the video surveillance in your part of the areas, in your towns, in your cities? Or would you be able to actually use it as a way to to, to influence the, the, the local atmosphere? In your in your tongues. You know, people are aware that there are surveillance ongoing right here. there will be less crim, criminal uh, activities ongoing right here as well. So yeah, a lot of applications, a lot of it create creativities around these two technologies.
0: So I have one question on that, and I think it's interesting, probably to demystify but as well to to look at this. So, China and actually I had a fantastic interview with Emmanuel Daniel that uh, he was talking, he's a founder of uh, the Asian Banker, where he this a lot of the myths we have about China and you being Chinese and, and uh, as well work because there's a different way the Chinese government looks at surveillance and the rest we, we look in Europe because in Europe we have this fear of, uh, of surveillance and we have actually sometimes a bit of a paranoia uh, even right now the the problems around 5G are partly coming from that so what would be probably your uh, um, insights on that level to look at surveillance in a more constructive way Um, but as well in the cultural or geopolitical way because now we have so much issues in the way we're looking special data and especially COVID-19 with the tracking apps and things like that so what's your call on that because this is critical for cities and increasingly it's going to be the max the next element because for instance if you look at South Korea this creates a lot of issues if you look If you look, of course, in U.S. is right now still going through a huge amount of of things. So how can we look at this? And you mentioned a lot of constructive examples, but I would like to go a bit more of the geopolitical side, but in a constructive level, not get into politics. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. So I I can only tell from
1: my perspective about my understanding about that. Um, So digital privacy. That what you're talking about is digital privacy, uh, which is a huge uh, issue right here um, in. Uh, across the world, so you know, last year or two years ago, maybe uh, GDPR was published, which actually certainly we can see lots of websites. You know, you register for different websites; they send you emails regarding, you know, are you happy for me to keep a a, a part of the record of your records? And that will change the way how we keep the cookies from from you when you visit our our website, etc. So, digital privacy is a huge issue, even for the morning for for the conversation I had this morning. Actually, I was I was speaking to two head of teachers uh in local schools uh in, in Wales and to talk about how we can you know um, facilitate 5G technologies to to help with the smart campus, to help with the smart education learning environment. And um definitely uh you know if you breach the students digital privacy, that's a no-no, that's a as a as a clear borderline that you cannot cross. So we know where is the limitations about what we can do, but we also know that you know, technologies can still help to some extent to facilitate a, a better environment for learning. So, um, so that means um, overall, there is a clear uh, picture about uh, the borderline of, of the digital privacy in this part of the world. Um, to some extent, uh, that could potentially limit the, uh, the, the, the speed of development. Of the technology, I'll say the speed of deployment of the technologies into the market, uh, but that's the uh, that's the price you you should uh, you should really uh, pay uh, to to ensure that you know you don't really breach the borderline and you don't incur the future huge cost and damage uh, uh, even the the rights uh, etc. But um, contrastingly, uh, there is a different approach uh, to to the to the digital privacy. Uh, in China, I have to say that we have to um, understand this a little bit more from the history and the cultural background because it's not a simple, uh, you know, on the paper, different approach in between different governments. So, simply speaking, people see that mm, the governments in China uh, are, 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 are having a little bit loose, um, you know, uh, control on in terms of keeping digital privacy. But on the other hand, actually, they have done pretty well in keeping that by um, keeping those terms and conditions uh, uh, embedded in, in in a lot of the applications. So in China, it is still a developing country, and that means the vast, vast majority of the population in China um, are not wealthy, that's true. And people, um, only in the past 10 years or five years they started they started to use uh, smartphones that tremendously ch- transformed their lives it's, they have experienced a huge convenience you know by accessing to those applications loads of applications on the Android systems you know and um, they normally exchange their personal privacies with those different applications I'll give you some examples if you go into any of the restaurants these days in China you have to scan the barcode. You have to, there is no such a way for you to make cash. There is no such a way for someone to provide you a paper-based menu. You have to scan a, a, a QR code on your table, which indicates the table number and give you the access to the digital menu. But ha- By having that, by having the access to that, you have to say yes to 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 being recognized by the system. So that means you will share your kind of applications uh, profile, you know, indicating you are male or female, and, and uh, all the all the information related to that, to, to, your, to your personal social account. And um, th- this is a, a, a kind of value exchange, a well-recognized value exchange uh, in the Chinese uh, culture at the moment people exchange their digital privacy with convenience, with the accessibility to to the value, they think that's valuable. And the government has also uh, leveraged this kind of the value creation from from those digital tools as well. So um, yes, there are lots of the facial recognition Actually, it happens to every single development, not just the government. You know, implementing the video surveillance by recognizing, uh, you know, individuals' uh, facial recognitions to to identify their locations, to identify who they are. It's also about the local development, the residential development, are implementing that facial recognition to identify people to get in and out of the uh, out of the districts. People just simply feel that's a part of their life. They don't feel breached and uh, if they need to look into the details it's all been written in the terms and conditions it's more or less like a a widely recognized culture in china at the moment is to exchange your personal digital privacy personal information with the v- convenience uh, with the value that's been created from digital solutions so um, culture is very different perception is different and also starting from the beginning, I mentioned that China is a developing country. So the level of the social development is, is quite different cause the self-consciousness of people um, is slightly different from the uh, Western part of the world from more developed world. Self-consciousness sometimes um, is not uh, as comparable as the, uh, you know, overall uh, overarching kind of the level of the, of the uh, aggregation. So uh, that's the reality. Um, But to some extent that helps with the business growth, with technology development. To the other extent is um, people uh, have already exchanged their digital privacies with the value that's been coming out of the digital solutions. I haven't mentioned about the origins of the history. I have to also mention that as well. I think that's quite important is, if you look at this China's history, China's society is formed by families, rather than the, uh, the economic um, institutional um, kind of the uh, structure, which is quite different. We so call it, it's called so-called peasant culture or agriculture culture, because um, originally China is an agricultural country. Start with the farmers and the farmers' families, and then every single family form an a important component of the, of the society. And that's how the hierarchy looks like. And there isn't a clear economic incentive behind this deformation the of these family structures. At that point of time, it's, it was emperor, and then, and then down to the families. Whereas in, in the western part of the world, starting from early on, they have already formed the hierarchy of the economic lives. You know, people realize that you exchange your value with value. And that's the economic incentives. So it's slightly different in terms of the perceptions and uh, long-term histories. And I think, to some extent, we need to appreciate, uh, you know, the culture differences. As I mentioned, also the market differences. So one is more fragmented market; the other is more unified market. So culture difference,
0: market difference and yeah, this is critical uh, and, and so we're passing one hour so i want to still touch two or three other questions that i think are important in this context and i think it although it's a big interview but i think it's very good insights and i think uh, there was some issues with internet but now it's much better going forward so um what i'd like to touch right now in the last part of the interview so from this uh, cultural difference but as well looking at the way we can take this forward and I think I'm particularly uh, um, interested in understanding your vision um, and your vision, as well as the founder of One4City, but as well as someone that works in one of the leading technology companies in the world. And as well as been actually uh, researching and, and doing a PhD and, and as well teaching in one of the leading uh, business schools in the planet. So um, what are like the findings that you found and as well, especially with COVID-19, what are the message and the, the things that you take out of this? Because it's, it's, it's a challenge, of course, but it's as well a great opportunity. And I think if you see China handling of this has been very different from Europe, um, as well, again, the, the geopolitical and the cultural difference, which I preferred to call it cultural difference. But how do you see this as well and the role that companies like yours and other companies and organizations around the world can actually right now lead? And show a bit more of peaceful and hopefully narratives, and as well solutions, because it's about solutions that create value.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's actually a, a timely and interesting question. Because um, COVID nineteen really have changed everybody's life, including mine, including mine. So, um, from my perspective, um, you always th- these two things always exist together: challenges and opportunities. We do have spotted lots of challenges coming from COVID-19. Not only just about the, the healthcare, but also about the the struggles of understanding each other in between different parts of the world. And people start to look at, you know, uh, the consequences of COVID-19. People started to look at the uh, how how they would be able to, uh, you know, uh, resume um the 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 government uh, governmental activities and also economic activities so from uh, i i i haven't really been working in the government so i can't really comment too much on that but uh, from my personal perspective is this could be a a new era that's um really looking to the future of uh, remote uh, connections because covid-19 has inevitably created a culture of social distancing. No matter whether you are in China or whether you are in the UK or elsewhere in the world, you have started to get used to social distancing. And uh, one of the uh, key insights is, um, you know, those multinational companies, there there was literally no expenses incurred in the past couple of months. You know, people don't travel, people don't, you know, uh, go into hotels. They don't spend money on that, and but potentially people, uh, the senior government, or uh, senior management will look at: Okay, did you hit the revenue in the past quarter when you had the COVID-19? If yes, why would I spend more money on expenses after COVID-19? And also, if yes, which part of our business could you know largely promote the, the, the remote connections? you know, to facilitate, like you and me are doing this at the moment, teleconferencing. We are not sitting in the same room, but we can still clearly hear each other, see each other, understand each other, and and capture, capture the insights from each other. So um, so that actually transformed a new way of working style, which I quite like uh, to, to think a little bit more into that as well. So once again, um, I hope that COVID-19 really would be able to um you know pull a little, uh, you know geographically located uh, uh, differently in uh, people in, in in the world together so people although they are geographically located differently but um but you know you can you can utilize these tools these technologies to really you know still communicate with each other still to collaborate with each other to work with each other and um and and you 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 could reduce the physical visits but um COVID-19 hopefully would create a positive impact in in terms of that kind of the remote working lifestyle, and that's what i'm looking for so that's why one for city again although it's a uk-based website it's a uk-based company um, i would like to also bridge the link between china and the uk and help each other to understand what are the actually the most um trendy and also impactful technology development on each side of the world what is the market uh, that is available to deploy those technologies to actually transform people's life that's quite helpful because with that bridge you can start to bring in the professional knowledge you can bring the experiences you can also bring the enthusiasm to actually make things happen
0: yeah, that's a very good point and actually a very positive one because I think we need to highlight that much more because I think there's the, the I think especially the the geopolitical side of things have been taking over and they forget the good things that are happening. And I think that's why these interviews are critical. So, probably another angle that I want to do and I think we'll wrap up in a while. So, in terms of um, coming back again and, and the, to the definition of smart cities and the definition of eco cities and as well the frames of the framework that you mentioned which i think is critical um and i think as a wrap-up as well the COVID-19 what would be from your experience as a researcher from an experience as well as an industry leader and as well someone leading innovation in a major global corporation so what would be uh, your input in terms of really creating frugal innovation that can actually create concrete results but as well concrete things that you can integrate right now in healthcare the social care and like you mentioned first companies are not right now having half of the cost of course they're not making so much money as well most of the companies are being affected by this actually one in five companies special SMEs are dying right now but at the same time this is actually accelerating digital transformation for cities for countries and everything else of course this will create a huge amount of challenges because of course tourism receive uh, a lot of uh, revenues on tourism and all of the infrastructure are really being killed but hopefully things have calmed down. So from your experience and on the practical side, like you just mentioned, what would be the, the highlights that you have from your experience and as well, from your knowledge and research? I have to share this with you.
1: I have to share this with you. And this is actually um, my, my recent uh, observations in the past two or three weeks. I, the more I feel about it, uh, the, the more I feel it, it's interesting. So an example is about healthy aging, um, as you mentioned, healthcare and social care. Healthy Aging is one of the industrial strategy challenges in the the UK. You know, uh, the UK government has classified 22 industrial strategy challenges to to frame the innovation directions for the whole country. Healthy Aging is one of them. Healthy Aging is also an important vertical, important pillar pillar for, for China as well. Especially, you know, their elderly people are increasing day by day and uh, Urbanization are increasing day by day, but the resources are decreasing or are more constrained and constrained as well so um, Huge pressure on them and you know, no matter whether it's uh, it's about pension or it's about Infrastructure or about afford affordable housing similar challenges to both countries what has happened is um, In the past year there is a healthy aging mission experts group from the UK spending two weeks in China to understand what is happening in terms of new technology deployment in social care environment or in care in extra care environment or, or, or dom care environment in Beijing and Shanghai I've attended that webinar from the beginning to the end because I personally have been working on healthy aging sector um, for Cisco and for one for city over the past two years. So I was the lead uh, from from both organizations. Um, I spotted a lot of the uh, similarities. So no surprises, Um, you know, um, in China, they've deployed technology fairly quickly. You know, people started to use sensors to detect the movements. People start to uh, wear wearables. It's a common thing now, you know, to understand the normal behavior of the person, also the normal conditions of the person, you know, temperature, et cetera. However, there are also some technologies which are more or less like a showcase. They haven't really been deployed onto the ground, because when people are asking, what does these tech- do these technologies really have changed your life or not? The answer largely is no. That means our technologies haven't really been helping or help enough. So um, that's actually down to the final step, which is the actually actual grounded deployment. If I look at the experiences of the technology de- deployment in healthy aging sector in the UK, so I've completed uh, another one or two projects in the UK, by actually groundedly, we handed over devices to elderly people, 65, in a local region in the UK. You know, hundreds of devices with installed applications, you know, potentially help them to uh, do video consultations, you know, do the welfare checks remotely, and to help to talk to their families, and also to engage with their social care workers. These are the actually grounded uh, activities we have already trialed in the UK market, however, we have not been hugely successful either. So the common issue is the user experience, is the user adoption. What are the actually the design and also implementation in your whole technology system will be able to help people on the ground to achieve what they can do? And that's the key question. So my takeaway is we need to start with small. We need to start with something a not a huge, you know, holistic, innovative, technological system. It has to go with step by step. We need to design a program. We know that the the system we are designing for the technologies at the moment would be able to create a huge impact, you know. It could be a connected infrastructure, incorporating social care and healthcare services, as well as public services. But that's five years later, that's long term future. What we need to do is need to down to a, a single element, you know, What about just a user-friendly panel, a, a tablet, only particularly designed for elderly people. They can, everybody can use it, no matter whether you've got learning disabilities or you've got dementia. You can simply push a few buttons and your system could automatically link to the services that you need. And that could also be interlinked with the wearables as well. The market is just over there, the market is waiting well, the technologies are not a huge fit and not a, a completely fit. And I think this is a single small, a, a very close to ground, the adoption techno adoptable technology is missing in the market. And every single technology develop developer needs to look into that bit before they go to the market. And um, and that's inevitable. That's inevitable. So um, let's all learn from that. Let's start from something small rather than you know. Um, giving away a huge system and saying hey you go and deploy it let's start with something small something deployable something which can literally make an impact tomorrow and step by step your system will be a part of that big picture so that's my personal takeaway and what I've learned in the past two or three weeks hopefully
0: no no that's fantastic and I think that's a great great way to wrap up And I think to, to there's a lot of insights in the interview and a lot of uh, great things we're going to take notes so just uh, as a last moment uh, the last uh, uh, wrap up so where people can find information about you about the one for city and about the work that you're trying to do because i think that's very important and it's a platform very ambitious that actually i think everyone will love and welcome and actually we are very fond fond, and as well very excited about it thank you um so people can find me on
1: um 14city.com website so um otherwise um I've also got an email uh which is uh, wilen.wu@14city.com um but yeah feel free to have a look at the website uh, we do have got a form so called contact us and as long as you're filling you know a few details you can easily reach me and we can have a chat anytime so I'm a quite outgoing and uh, flexible person uh, i've got two cultures in my in my blood so i'm fine with any conversation
0: so william a pleasure to have you here thank you so much for your time and for the great insights both for in innovation <laughs> Eco cities, uh, smart cities, one for city. We're going to put information about your company, and you are going as well to put some of the content where people can find you, and they can find the information about this. And this will be, of course, at citiesabc.com, in our podcast, in iTunes, Spotify, and a lot of other places, and as well, um, of course, in our major websites. Thank you so much, William. Really. Thank you so much, Dennis. Really pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.